ARE Study Guide Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the ARE Study Guide Podcast. Today, we are going to wrap up our section on the construction and evaluation exam. So our final thing we are going to talk about is the project closeout. So I don't usually do this, but in this case, I think the objective information that's listed in the ARE 5.0 handbook is really good at not just telling you what to prepare for, but it also holds information within it that I think is helpful to understand what the architect's responsibilities are. So the construction and evaluation exam has four sections, and the final section is the smallest section, only covering 7 to 13% of the test, and it's identified as project closeout and evaluation. And the first objective within the section is project closeout procedures. And in the ARE handbook, what it says is, as an architect, you will need to be familiar with project closeout documents, which may include warranties, record drawings, a punch list, and a final application for payment submitted by the contractor. You will also need to review the contractor's completed work and make determinations regarding the substantial completion and final completion of a project and understanding the implications of each process. So I think that's important because by telling you the elements of the project closeout, they're also telling you what you're responsible for as an architect, which I assume the questions are going to kind of be geared towards. So let's review all of those items. The project closeout is the final phase of the project. When an architecture firm internally closes out a project, meaning they are no longer working on it, they need to make sure they keep their project records for at least 15 years. Obviously, that number could vary by firm, but good practice. Keep all of your records for a project for 15 years. This is in case any litigation arises, any problems happen, you hold onto your documents as protection. And it's also in case the owner needs anything. If they want to do a remodel or match a paint finish or whatever other kind of information they might need from you, it's good to have all of that stuff in your records. Warranties will typically begin at the date of substantial completion unless otherwise noted in the contract. So the warranty is the warranty on the work. So the contractor has a one-year warranty on the project typically. I don't know if it ever gets extended, but for one year after substantial completion, the contractor vouches that the project is complete and it performs to the standards it's supposed to. And if anything arises, if there's any issues with the construction within that year, the contractor will come and fix them at no charge. So that's the warranty period, and it typically begins at the date of substantial completion, meaning the date that the architect declares to be substantial completion is very important. Substantial completion. Substantial completion is when the project is complete enough to be used for its intended use. There may still be a few outstanding punchless items, but the building is able to be occupied. The building operations may not be conducted at full capacity, but they're at least able to partially commence. If the building is residential, substantial completion marks the point the building is habitable. 
If the project is just a core and shell project, substantial completion may not mean that it's ready for use because the build out of the interior will happen under a different contract after the core and shell is completed. At substantial completion, punch lists are made of items that need to be completed or corrected. Punch lists can be very time consuming for the architect to produce. Developing a punch list may be included in the architect's contract or it may be offered as an additional service by the architect. So substantial completion is very important. In addition to starting the contractor's warranty, substantial completion also means that it's the end of the project schedule. It's the end date for occurring any liquidated damages. So if the project construction has been delayed and there's liquidated damages, that will stop when the project reaches substantial completion. If there are benefits for early completion, substantial completion is the date for which those will be marked at. So if you're rewarded for finishing the project early and substantial completion occurs three months before the end of the project schedule, the contractor will be compensated. Substantial completion also marks the start of the statute of limitations for an architect's errors and omissions in most states. So the statute of limitations is typically 10 years. So substantial completion marks the start of that clock. So if you're doing a project, 10 years from substantial completion is when potential litigation issues could come up. Again, that's why it's really important to keep all of your documents to protect yourself in the event of something happening. So how does the architect determine that substantial completion has been reached? The contractor will notify the architect saying that they have reached substantial completion and the contractor will provide the architect with a final punch list. So they're saying we're at substantial completion. The building can be used for its intended use but there are a few other things. And here's a list of those things that we know that we still have to do. So the architect will go visit the site and look for anything that's not aligned with the contract documents. If there's any non-conforming work, the project cannot be verified at substantial completion because the only things remaining need to be small things that don't affect the use of the building. So things that are not aligned with the contract documents those are considered major things, and those need to be corrected before substantial completion is reached. Non-conforming work is not a punch list item. So if the architect finds that all of the work is conforming and there's just punch list items remaining, the architect will issue a certificate of substantial completion, and this is AIA document G704. The certificate of substantial completion contains a punch list containing the outstanding items to be corrected or completed, a time frame for which the contractor is expected to complete these items, and a list of all the non-conforming owner-approved items. So if work is found to be non-conforming at this phase or any phase prior and the owner approves it, all of that's going to be listed in the Certificate of Substantial Completion. Final Completion Final completion is when the contractor is totally finished with the project. The contractor will notify the architect that the project is finished and request a final inspection by the architect, along with their application for final payment. If the architect visits the site and agrees that the work is finished per the scope of the contract documents, they will issue the final certificate for payment to the owner. 
the owner will then pay the contractor for the remaining balance as well as any retinage that has been held. The final certificate for payment is the marker of final completion, but the architect does not verify the contractor's work. Verifying the work is the contractor's job. Because the architect is not responsible for verifying, there is no AIA document for final completion. Again, so for final completion, the architect does visit the site, but they're not responsible for fully inspecting and verifying the work, right? Because the architect is not going to become liable for the contractor's quality. They're just verifying the work that they see meets the scope of the contract documents. They fulfilled their obligation, but they are not responsible for verifying things. The architect's scope typically ends when the final certificate for payment is issued. For the architect to work on the project after the final certificate for payment is issued is typically considered an additional service, unless otherwise stated in the owner-architect agreement. Within a year of substantial completion, usually closer to the end of the year, the architect will come one time to meet with the owner on site to do a review of the project. This is per AIA document B101 owner-architect agreement. In that document, it says that the owner can request that the architect make a site visit and the architect does not get paid for this visit. It should happen within the contractor's warranty window. The architect needs to go make a visit and if they realize there's anything the contractor should fix before that warranty window is up, this is when the architect can tell the owner of those things. And it's also really good just for the architect to review their project to see how it's performing. Is it doing what they thought they would? Are the users using the space like they thought they would? Are the occupants happy in the space? It's one thing to design something and you think you know how it's gonna work, but then when you actually build it, the way that users interact with it might be really different. So this visit is really beneficial, not just to the owner. It's also really beneficial for the architect. So moving forward, they can make corrections in their designs, knowing the difference between how things are designed and how they actually get used and operated. And of course, a good savvy architect will do a post-occupancy evaluation and those will typically happen three to six months after a building is occupied. And this is where the architect can survey users to find out if the building is meeting the program requirements. Things like, are the light levels adequate? How's the thermal comfort? What's it feel like to be in the space? Are the users satisfied? Is the owner satisfied? How are the acoustics? Things like that. You can survey the building users, of course, if the owner permits you. And this could be used to make adjustments to the building. If it's things like thermal comfort and light levels, those are things that you can hopefully fix. And then things that you can't really fix because they're more permanent, like the layout doesn't really work. Just really good for the architect to know moving forward so they don't keep making the same mistakes on their future projects. That's a good rundown of the project closeout. And that also wraps up our section on construction and evaluation. The next section we are going to dive into is going to be practice management. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please reach out to me at arestudyguidepodcast.com. All of the information that I go over in the podcast 
I am directly pulling from the study guides and there's so much more within the study guide itself. Uh, just looking at the construction and evaluation one, cause I have it up right now. Uh, the guide itself is 142 pages. So obviously I'm not going to read you all 142 pages in the podcast. So if you want all of the information, you can get the study guide very affordably on the website, arestudyguidepodcast.com. And if you are taking your construction and evaluation exam soon, I just want to give you a couple more tips. Make sure that you review the AIA documents B101 and A201. Again, if you get the study guide, you're in great shape. You can just review the notes on that that are really thorough. You can also just read them yourselves. Give yourselves probably extra time than you think to read them. I found them very boring and they took a little longer to read than normal text. They're free on the AIA website. Just search AIA document B101 on Google, click the link, and then there's a preview button on the AIA website where you can read it. Also for this exam, review construction details. So this is construction and evaluation. So you're thinking about when things are being built, are they being built correctly? And as architects, we're always concerned with water. And so on the exams, they're also always concerned with water, right? It's a really big part of our practice to make sure that we do these details right. So look at Building Construction Illustrated, uh, in particular chapters three and seven, and really try to understand the concepts of waterproofing, insulation, foundations, and excavations. And I think with all the exams, but definitely with this one too, review ADA requirements egress, fire ratings, occupancies. I think in general that goes for all of the exams. That's a big part of the ARE exams is knowing the egress requirements and ADA requirements, fire stuff. They don't get too nitty gritty on these details. So don't go crazy like the little stuff, like what is the height for the bottom of a mirror? And I I hate to say that because maybe you will get that question. That's not really the kind of stuff they're concerned with, right? Because like, if you put a mirror at the wrong height, is anyone going to die? Is anyone going to be that uncomfortable? I mean, it's not good in real practice. Like if you're designing a bathroom, put your mirrors at the right height. But for the test, that's not really the kind of stuff. It's about the big stuff, like the clearance for a hallway, because that kind of stuff could have a disastrous consequence if your hallway is too narrow if you were even allowed to get a building permit, if it was an oversight by the building department or whatever. But um, I think about that. It's like about the safety stuff or like think about someone in a wheelchair going down a sidewalk on the curb ramp down across the street on the crosswalk. What, like what would that slope of that curb need to be? And like, what are the safety features for that curb or on any ramp? What's like the maximum slope? Because if a ramp is too steep, what if someone's not expecting that? And then suddenly they're going way too fast and out of control. And then they like hit a car or a wall or something. So it's all safety stuff. Like the height of handrails, like all this stuff is really, really important. And ultimately we don't want to hurt anybody with our designs. So really good stuff for us to know anyways. Things like how wide does a handrail need to be? I, we always need to look at that 
in real life, like, right, we're always drawing those details for our drawings. But for the exam, I don't think that's as important. Again, I would hate if they ask you that and you're like, I didn't study that because Lindsay told me not to. But think about what's important for safety. If something could directly injure or like endanger our occupants, those are the really important things for yourself and for the exam to study. Because if you just try to tackle the whole building code, you're never going to have time to take all the tests because you're going to be reading for a very long time. Okay, sorry to digress as I was wrapping up, but I hope that's helpful. And as always, you can reach out to me with any questions and I will do my best to answer. I'm kind of just like you guys. I have now completed all of my exams, so I guess I have a little bit of insight, but for the most part, I am just like you guys. I am just studying and just trying to do my best and still really young and green at this. So yeah, I can help you to the best of my ability, but I am definitely no guru, definitely no mentor. Yeah, just a student trying to get by. And I don't think I've told you guys this in a while, but I just want you to know that I think you're amazing and I'm super proud of you for working so hard. I know that when you're taking these exams, it's a long road without much gratification. You might take an exam and pass and then you have to wait months to take another one while you're studying. And then you get like that hit of dopamine and then you go back into the fearful, crazy state of studying again and thinking, will I ever finish this? And just know what you're doing is really great. Like not many people do this. There's really not many professions that make you work this hard and there's really not many professions that are cooler than ours we have a really cool job we get to make things really tangible things that people not only get to use but that like really inspire and really bring joy to people's lives so what we're doing is great and you're doing great you're working really hard and it's going to pay off for the rest of your life no matter where you end up, the just the fact that you worked so hard for something that you're going to achieve. That's tremendous. And now that I have actually finished all of my exams, I just want to say, don't feel rushed to get to the finish line. I think it took me about a year and a half to take all of the divisions. Uh, keep in mind, I also got laid off during COVID. So like the first three months, I didn't have a full-time job. So I had a lot of extra time that you probably don't have. But now that I've completed it all, I realized, oh, it doesn't actually matter. Like nothing's changed in my life. Uh, I'm super happy that I completed it and I've learned a lot in the process. But now I realize I probably didn't have to rush it as much as I thought I did. Uh, my husband is, an, is a licensed architect and it took him five years to take the exams and his parents were like teasing him about it. And that kind of, I can't say it inspired me, but it kind of made me think like, oh, I don't want to be teased for taking so long to finish these exams. Right. I don't, what do other people think? But in reality, these exams are only for you. It's not for your boss. It's not for your friends. It's not for anyone. It's just for you so that you can be a licensed architect and you can do with that with what you want. But even like once you're licensed, it's not like you can instantly just start winning jobs left and right. Like I have a, literally one project I can do when I'm licensed, 
or two, two. Okay. I have two projects, but like, I'm not in a rush to do it. There, there's no rush. I think maybe a few of you have a better reason to be rushed, but take that pressure off. Don't put a time constraint. Don't tell yourself, oh, I have to finish all the exams in a year or these have taken me too long. Like it, it doesn't matter. It's, it, it's all for you. And if setting an unrealistic time constraint on yourself is going to stress you out, then I would probably say that's not worth it because why be miserable? Why not just enjoy the process and why not spend the time so you can actually learn more? If you're rushing through it, are you going to really remember all this stuff after the test? I can tell you I didn't. I've already forgotten most of the stuff, especially for the exams that I was cramming on when I only gave myself a month to study. So it's up to you. You take it or leave it. But um, my advice is to be a little kinder to yourself and don't feel afraid of anyone judging you for taking too long. This is just about you. No one else's opinion matters in this scenario. These tests are only for you. Make the most of it for yourself. Get out of it the most you can for yourself. Okay, sorry to digress to such a degree. So we are wrapped up construction and evaluation. I will see you on the other side whenever you are ready to recommence. Bye.